Nehemiah chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will we even sell your, uh, even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even to this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out of the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. Then the people did according to to this promise. Moreover, from the time that I appointed to be, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twelfth year until the thirty second year of King Artaxerxes, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work, and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl was prepared for me. And once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, oh, uh, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that there's no other place in this world where we can find the truth that's found in it. We're so grateful, Lord, as this world unravels and becomes more and more unsecure and just falling apart in so many ways, Lord, you're in control and you are guiding everything towards your end. Thank you, Father, that you are still on the throne. Thank you, Jesus, that you're still interceding for each one of us. I pray for anybody here who's discouraged, who's overwhelmed, who's full of anxiety, I pray that you would strengthen them, encourage them. I pray you'd pour into them, Father. Give them your perspective. Refresh them by your Holy Spirit, God. Help them to cast their care upon you as they're told in your word because you care for them. Thank you, Lord, that you take all of our burdens. Thank you that you tell us not to worry because you have everything in your hands for us that we need. Help us to seek first your kingdom. I pray for those that have gotten off course who are not seeking first your kingdom anymore. They're seeking their own. 
I pray, Lord, that you would bring them back to putting you first in everything. Help us to put aside the sin and the, and, and the weights that, that are there, Lord. We pray that you would help us to run the race with endurance, looking unto you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you that we were the joy that was put before you, that you endured the cross for. Thank you, Father, that you have made every provision for our lives. Help us to live lives that honor you in every way. We pray, Lord, that this flock, Lord, your church, would glorify you in all that they do, Lord, and point people to you and and lead many to Christ and disciple many. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Nehemiah has been called to an incredibly difficult task, an impossible task in the natural, if you really think about it and you really look at it. He's been called to lead the people of Israel in rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. God's been gracious with him. God has supplied for him. God's already shown that his good hand is upon Nehemiah. As we've seen, God, uh, Nehemiah rather has acknowledged that, that God's good hand was upon me. That hasn't stopped. It isn't just there when we start the work. It's there during the work and after the work because God is a good God. He's good. He can't help himself. It's who he is. It's not something he's trying to be. It's something who he is. He's good. So the king, Artaxerxes, has provided for him the necessary papers to pass through those areas to get to Jerusalem. He's supplied for him the, the protection or the kind of like the secret service, if you will, a military escort to Israel. He's also provided all the building materials. And and so he's shown Nehemiah how faithful he is in the beginning. Nehemiah is modeling all of that as he continues going through the work with these people. He's demonstrating and revealing to them, reminding them that God's faithful, that he's in this. Which means that no matter what opposition, and they faced much of it, is not going to win. We have to understand that. This is an impossible task in the natural. And God loves to put us in impossible situations just so he can reveal his glory in the nick of time. And from his perspective, it's the perfect time, right on time. For us, it seems pretty late because we'd prefer a little bit more, you know, lead time of letting us see his provision. I'm sure Moses would have appreciated that at the Red Sea. I'm sure Joshua would have appreciated that uh, at the Jordan. I'm sure that that Joshua was thinking about all of that when he's leading the people of Israel to march around Jericho. I mean, he has perfect timing. And we get so frustrated with God because he doesn't meet needs before we need him to be met. We want him early. We want our needs met early, myself included. But God has a way of doing things to where we recognize that our dependence upon him is part of the whole process. And that's how we grow in our faith and our Character is learning how to trust him when we don't see, when we can't understand, when we don't know how he's going to do it, but we honor him anyway by faith. And we're standing on his word and not our feelings. We're honoring him with our lives instead of sub, sub, uh, subjecting ourselves to our thoughts and having our thoughts take over that are contrary to his word. It's honoring him through the whole process. And that's what uh, Nehemiah has been leading God's people in. We've seen that Samballot. The governor of Samaria and Tobiah and others have come against God's people with mockery and threats. Both of those forms of opposition are very effective. And we can think that mockery is not a big deal. You know, a sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is not true. It hurts, especially when they're using truth. And usually mockery has truth in it at some level. And, and so they saw that. They've seen threats come at them. They have this encroaching circle of opposition closing in on them, watching for any little weakness. They can't even, they have to have, uh, as we saw last week, their sword in one hand and their trowel in the other, and they're, they're ready for battle at any moment, can't focus completely on the task at hand without thinking about being attacked. How is it for each of us when we are trying to focus on something and we can't have a total focus and have our complete focus on something, it's frustrating to us. But it's more than that for them. It's their lives. It's losing everything. Talk about being distracted. 
If you're distracted in what you're doing for God and how you're serving and loving him and all of those things, it makes it harder to focus on him. But sometimes he calls us to serve when we're distracted. We want this perfect world when we have total clarity and perfect focus and nothing competing against our attention. But so often he allows that. Why? He allows that because it reveals things in us that he wants to work on. And it reveals to us that his grace is sufficient. And it reveals to us that maybe the job that we think he wants isn't, needs to be as perfect as we're thinking in our minds, but it's what he wants. You know, I just think of the building. You know, I would love to have that new building be a certain way when we move in, but it's not going to be that way. It's going to be what he wants it to be. I have to be content with that. The leaders, everyone else, all of us have to be content with that. The bathrooms aren't going to get remodeled for a little while. You know, we're going to have to be very gracious with that. But God has a timing for all those things, and, and, and so we need to humble ourselves. And so here were these threats, here were this mockery, and, and some of that was factual. And what the enemy does when we're in the middle of doing what he's called us to do, he'll give us one set of facts and lies. He interweaves tw- lies in there too, but the things that are truly factual, what he does, as we saw last week, is he leaves out other sets of facts. Yes, it is true that they were weak and feeble, But the other set of facts he didn't mention is that God's good hand was upon them. And that he'd already demonstrated his faithfulness in supplying what they needed to start. And he's already protected them up to this point. There's all these things. So they have to recognize a different set of facts. Whatever you're struggling with today related to being obedient to God, fulfilling what he has for you, whatever facts that you're looking at that are true, they're they're facts. It's reality. What are the other set of facts in God's word that is also true at the same time? That the enemy, maybe your flesh or your mind, is leaving out. That's what you need to focus on. His promises. Because yes, your, your, your reality is what it is. Don't believe lies, of course. But the part that's true, that's what it is. But there's a whole other set of facts, a whole other set of promises, a whole other set of things in God's word that's equally true that compensates supernaturally for all those other things. But so often when we get burdened down and we're weighted down and all we see are those, those facts that are they're, they're hard for us to accept or we accept them too much in the sense that we're dwelling on them, we need to look, what's the other set of facts in the situation? What's the other things that are relevant in this? Because the enemy conveniently leaves those things out. Some of the things that you'll do when you're counseling other people or encouraging other believers is help them see and help them find the other set of facts. And then bring those things before the Lord. And the things that are challenging, those facts, you commit them to the Lord. And the things that are encouraging, you honor God with your faith and say in a prayer, God, this is what your word says. And I believe it. And I believe that your word is true no matter what happens in my situation. Because you've never been proved to be a liar. But I have. (laughs) We all have been proven a liar by God in the sense of what his word says and what we were thinking would happen or whatever. God's word is always true. It's beautiful. So now today we're going to break from the attacks from without. We're going to take a little break, and they'll come back next week a little bit, Lord willing. Uh, we'll, we may be in heaven by next Sunday. We need to remind ourselves that. You know, the rapture could happen at any moment. We need to be ready. Any moment it could happen. Sometime there's not going to, whenever that happens, there's going to be a next Sunday that doesn't happen. And so um, for those people that said, hey, we became raptured this week, you know, wouldn't you like to be that, um, those people that said that? But, of course, they get into date setting, and that's a whole other issue. We don't want to go there. Tell uh, how, how Harold Camping, um, he doesn't, he's not setting dates right now. But I don't mean that as a joke. I'm saying it's done. It's over with. You know, his false teaching is, is done. So we're going to see this disobedience today from within which is the most serious threat to any work of God, the the attacks from within. All through Israel's history, if they stayed true to the Lord and they were holy and they they honored him and didn't serve false gods and all those things, nobody could defeat them. No attack from without could even come close to hurting them. It's when they compromised from within. That's when God allowed them to be defeated. It's never changed. It hasn't changed in the church. The most damage that happens in the church are when internal things happen, not things from without. Uh, The biggest threat are the attacks from 
within. That's what we're going to see today. And, and all of this started long before Nehemiah ever got there. We need to know that. These things that have happened, these arrangements that we're going to see, they were all laid out before he got there. And, and, and so he's going to deal with it because he's a godly leader. Notice in verse 1, there's an outcry among the people, we're told. Then there was a great outcry, not just an outcry, a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Now notice this, this complaint wasn't against foreigners, wasn't against Satan, wasn't against God. This complaint, this, this was related to their Jewish brethren. That's an internal issue. That's not external. That's not Sam Ballot. That's not Tobiah. It's not the other guy that we're going to see next week. So it's, it's an internal issue, and we'll get to more of that in a moment. Verse 2 says, For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. See, there was a famine in the land. We're going to be told that in a moment. There was a famine in the land, and they wanted Nehemiah to allow them to stop working on the wall and use their kind of numerous or abundant families and all their children to work in the fields and get grain to eat. That's one set of people. Those, this set of people had lands. They had lands to work and all of that. But then there's another group. Look at me in verse 3. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. So there's a whole other group. They've mortgaged their lands and vineyards and so they want to do that. They want to have the chance to go out and buy grain and all of that. And then there's this third group, um, or it gets worse actually in verse 4. Uh, there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So some had borrowed money in order to pay the king's tax on their lands and vineyards. And some had, they had forced their sons and daughters to be slaves. Now just, this is, these are not just words on a page. Think of that. Your sons and daughters, you have to sell them as slaves to be able to pay tax and, just, and all these things. Just think of the pain of that. I can't even imagine it. And then some of the daughters were told there, uh, in the middle of verse 5, some of the daughters had been brought into slavery. In other words, it wasn't their idea. It wasn't their idea at all, and they were brought into slavery, and they, it wasn't their choice. This is all with Jewish brethren. Jewish brethren. This is all part of their own number. And what makes matters worse, they have no capacity to buy them back. Horrible situation. You can't have a more distracting situation than this. A famine's bad enough, but then to be able to have no capacity to, to free your kids because what you've had to do to survive and pay taxes and all these things with these abusive governors that were there before and all of that, and they're in this situation, and, and it's a very great outcry. And, and, and man, talk about just a horrible situation. How effective do you think their work is rebuilding the wall with all of this going on? There's no Samballot here. There's no Tobiah here. This is internal. And notice Nehemiah's response in verse 6. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He didn't know about this. This is new to him. He didn't know about all these dynamics that were going on there in the land, and that's why he became very angry. Or he, wouldn't have, he would have already been very angry if he had known that before this time, but now he became very angry because he's hearing it for the first time. And good leaders care about the people under their care. Nehemiah had a heart for these people. He loved them. This wasn't just something on his resume. You know, I did all this. I was a cupbearer, and then I also helped re rebuild the wall in, in Jerusalem, and then I went on to this, and there's stepping stones to greater and greater things. No, this was, was his people. He loved these people. He cared about them. This was real lives being damaged and hurt and all of that. And it's a beautiful picture of his heart, the Lord's heart, that he had entrusted to Nehemiah. Verse 7. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. And I want to stop there for a moment. 
after serious thought. Now, this is a very critical situation. A lot of bad things can happen at this point if he doesn't handle this well. It reminds me of Acts chapter 6 when the, when the Grecian widows complained that the Hebrew widows were getting better treatment in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles sought the Lord. And they said, choose among you seven men, a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, who can take care of these things. They dispatched people within the other people to know who it is that's already doing these things. There could have been a split right there in the early church. You could have had the people with the Hebrew background break away from, it actually be the opposite, the, the people with the Greek background that were, that were um, Jews would break away because they were seeing favoritism happen. The apostles never said, oh, you're out of your mind. You're exaggerating this. There's no problems here. They never said any of that. It evidently was happening. And so the Holy Spirit intervened supernaturally, sovereignly in that moment to keep from a church split because the enemy wants to, the enemy saw an opening because internally somebody wasn't doing right. There was favoritism going on. You could even say racism was going on. And someone wasn't doing right, and the enemy sees that little opening, and he causes, wants to cause a wedge. And if the leaders don't handle it right in that moment, that's why Nehemiah says, after serious thought, the Holy Spirit leads him to have some serious thought, because the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to him the solution, just like with the apostles, with that distribution. And they did appoint seven men, and they're all Greek names. That's totally wise. They're already doing the work. They have Greek names. And, and it saved a split at that moment. That was a crisis. The people never even knew that it was a crisis. I don't even know that the apostles knew it was a potential crisis. They probably did, or some of them at least, but it was. Same, same in this situation. Nehemiah knows that if he handles this wrong, things could go badly, very badly in a hurry. It's just amazing when we get, let our flesh um, get in the way of what God wants to do. Now, in the law of Moses, God forbade the Jews from charging their fellow Jews interest. And it's called usury. Now, we use usury as exorbitant interest. That's how we use that that term today. But that's not how God used it. That's not how it was back then. They they weren't allowed to charge their fellow Jews interest at all on on those things. Hold your place here. And I want us to look at this real quick. In Leviticus chapter 25. Turn over to Leviticus 25. Third book of the Bible, if you're new to the Bible. No shame in using table of contents. No shame in that at all. If you have the tabs, there's no shame in that. Don't let anyone tell you they're Pharisee tabs. There's no, there's no shame in having tabs on your Bible. I don't want us to read. This is where Nehemiah has a biblical basis. See, the reason, what, part of the reason why these leaders are going to be silent, which I'm thankful that they don't start chirping up with some excuses or justification, because they knew what the word said. Leviticus chapter 25, I want to begin reading in verse 35. If one of your brethren becomes poor, now notice the word brethren, okay? We're talking about fellow Jews. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner. So it's not even like they're supposed to treat sojourners or strangers poorly. That's not God's heart. He sees everybody equally. He shows no partiality. Continuing in the middle of verse 35, that he may live with you. He wants unity. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, which was allowed, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner he shall be with you, and he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee." And there are other places where after seven years they were allowed to be freed when they paid off their debt and all of that. And they could be, after seven years, they could be a volunteer person, you know, servant at that point and, and, and have that arrangement permanent. But the year of Jubilee happened every 50 years and all the debts were canceled, all the land went back to the original families and all of that. 
And um, so he's saying, don't do that to your brethren. So this is the standard. This is God's word. This is where Nehemiah is getting everything from. They all knew it, they all, and they had ignored it, and, and, it's, and it's, it's just a tragedy. Look what had it, it had done. Again, this was all happening before Nehemiah got there. Now, we're going to go one other place before we uh, go back to Nehemiah, and that is James. Turn over to the book of James in the New Testament. Can't all be there that fast. Even with apps, it doesn't take you that fast. Someday apps could be taken away. Never know. I'm not a big apps fan with Bibles. I know it's a good supplement. James chapter 2, let's look at. I want to begin reading in verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So let me pause there. He's not saying that you're saved by works here if you read the whole passage. He's going to say if, if you have faith, you're going to demonstrate your faith by works, but your works don't save you. He's saying the kind that never does anything, how safe is that faith? You know, how, if, you, if your works are dead and you don't have any works whatsoever as a Christian, then he says you have a dead faith. So it's important for us to have works. A, a natural outflow or overflow of our faith, of our walk with him, is good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that he's created us in Christ Jesus for good works, that he's prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So no, we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our works. But because we are saved, we're saved unto good works. And that's what he's talking about. Look at verse 15 in James 2. If a brother or sister, and again, this is internal. Internal. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can turn back to Nehemiah chapter 5. So God, what, this is what, the, what, if they had James back then in 445 B.C., this would be, but there was plenty of things in the law that told them to take care of people. And that's the heart that God has. God's a gracious God. He's a benevolent God. He's a loving God. He cares about people. We just saw in Leviticus how he cares about strangers and sojourners. He he allowed the the poor to to gather crops around the edges of the the field or pick fruit from the edges of the crops and that but they had to go out and do it. But he allowed for that. He cares about people. And work there's a scripture I I should have put it in here it just shows you how I'm don't have it all together, which you already know. But um, there's, a, there's a place, and it says, do good, especially to the household of faith. We need to look out for ourselves more than anyone else that we know. We're supposed to bless the poor. We're supposed to outreach, of course. We're supposed to preach the gospel. But we need to watch out for one another. When we have those meal things coming out where people need meals, we need to sacrifice to, to be a part of those things. It does require sacrifice. We need to take care of each other. We need to be asking questions. How are you doing? How, how are the kids doing? You know, inquiring, finding out. The people with the gift of giving do this really well. And people don't even know what's happening. And they'll start asking questions and they'll find out. And all of a sudden someone will have a check in the mail. Or there will be groceries at their, at their door. It's just a beautiful gift of giving there. That, and people ha- that with that gift, they have to kind of find out what's going on they need to get data they need to get information that helps them understand how to bless somebody it's beautiful that's what god wanted these these nobles and these jewish leaders to be doing but instead they did the opposite they took advantage of these people and it's sad now we'll continue in verse 7 there in nehemiah chapter 5 so he said so i called a great assembly against them notice the word against that's not a good thing <laughs> Uh, when you, someone makes an assembly, a great assembly against you, you know you're in trouble. Uh, verse 8, And I said to them, According to our ability, 
We have redeemed our Jewish brethren who, are, who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. He's saying, guys, God used us to help these people get from Babylon to their land. And now you're going to own your own people? And worse yet, you're, you're buying them? We're going to sell them. We're going to buy them ourselves. You know, and, and notice the end of verse 8. He says, then they were silenced and found nothing to say because they knew they knew the law. They knew what we just read. And it's not just in Leviticus. It's in Deuteronomy too. And it's important when God says something once, of course. But when he repeats himself, we really need to pay attention. They knew that. See, there were these Jews that came with Zerubbabel as we talked about earlier, about 70 years prior to this, when they rebuilt the temple and all of that. This is in the mid-400s. The temple was finished around 516 there. It had taken 18 years to build. So Zerubbabel brought a whole bunch of people that came with them back then, and they were living in the land and all of that. But then in 10 years earlier than with this, where we're at right now, in 455, Ezra brought some more people and their families. And I believe these nobles saw those people 10 years ago, or even the people that came from before, doesn't say, but took advantage of them because of the famine, because they had a capacity to be able to do that. And it's sad. They should have been leading by communicating God's heart and acting on how God's heart is and helping and being gracious with people and, and their own brethren, and they didn't do it. They did the opposite. They even, they, I mean, how hard does your heart have to get to accept somebody's children as your slave a former a fellow jew when you have children and you would never want that to happen but you're okay with that to be able to take advantage of them it's horrible and and god was grieved by it no wonder he stopped this wall you know how many works of god does god have to stop because we're not living how we're supposed to be living and we're saying that the ends justify the means but you know what god's concerned about the beginning and the middle and the end and all three phases and even after the project is completed, integrity matters to him. And how people are treated matters to him. And he's grieved. They have grieved the Holy Spirit here. And no wonder he's caused all of this to come to a stop. And he's going to provide much-needed rebuke in verse 9. Look with me there. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? Because of the reproach of the, enemy, of the nations, our enemies? He says it's not good. He said walk in the fear of God. They weren't fearing God. If they were, they would be honoring his word. We need more fear of God in the church. We need to reverence him. We need to respect him. We need to fear him in a, in a godly way, in a way that's filled with humility. He's caused us to do the right thing no matter what, to treat people right, to not just say be warm and be filled and then pass on, but if, if it's in our power to help them and to be practical. And we're, again, the context is talking about brethren. Yes, we're supposed to be that way towards strangers as much as we can, but the context that James is talking about is brethren. Saying to people in our church, going by and seeing a need and going, Hope you're, bless you, brother. Hope your, your needs are taken care of. You're, you're, you'll be fine. I'll be praying for you. And, and I'm not talking about well, we have no capacity to help or whatever. I'm talking about we do have a capacity to help and we are just have a hard heart towards them and just say, you know what? God will take care of it. You'll be fine. He's saying that's not, that's not practical. It doesn't work. And it's not, it's not um, something that doesn't grieve the Lord's heart. It does grieve the Lord's heart. Verse 10. I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Now, Nehemiah was a wealthy cupbearer. He had accumulated a lot of wealth. He's going to get into a lot of the things that he was able to have and all of that. Most of them were. When you're a cupbearer, you've gained a lot of money. It was a, it was a very trusted position. And the king rewarded people that for that. But he told these guys that he's lent money too, but he didn't charge them interest. But I want to call, you atten call our attention to one word that's in verse 10, and it's the word us. Let us stop this usury. That wasn't said by accident. He wasn't doing it, but he said us. Why did he do that? He's calling their atten attention to the fact that 
They're all one. They're all, they're Jewish. They're God's people. And even though he personally didn't do it because they did it, it's going to bring reproach upon their, everybody. And we've seen many examples of that in scripture where one person does something in the, in, with, among the Jews or whatever and it affects the whole group in massive ways. And we think, oh, you know, because of our individual society and, you know, we think of ourselves as individuals and all of that, that we're primarily individuals who happen to be a larger whole in the body of Christ. The, the New Testament doesn't communicate that. The New Testament communicates that we're a larger whole who happen to be individual members. He always talks about us as a body way, way more than he talks to us as individuals. We have to fight against that in our culture because we're so individualistic. In other countries where the family unit is the primary unit that people think about, a church family is no big deal at all. It's like it's, we're already used to identifying ourselves as, as a group, as a, as a family. So they're, they're, they're way ahead of us probably in these things. You would never let someone in your immediate family suffer. And just when they're, they have needs and you just go, you know what, just you'll be okay. You'll, and when you have the power to help them, you would never do that. That's what he's saying here. When we have the power to help, we are one body. And he, he, says, he says it's not good for us to do that. Please, we need us. We stop this. We need to stop this usury. Now he gives them the right thing to do to repent and make restitution in verse 11. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Notice the word charged. That you have charged them. This is getting into the usury. So they said, we will restore it. It's, you know, I kind of want, wanted to, when I was first reading this, I remember thinking, maybe not the first time, but there was a time where I thought, I wanted them to just get a little lippy here. You know, just to see what Nehemiah would have said in response to that. It would have been beautiful and if, how he would have dealt with it and how we could have learned a lot from it. But thankfully, though, obviously in the real situation, we're thankful that they said, we will restore it. And we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. The priests were involved. Their professional worshipers were involved. Even professional worshipers can do things that aren't right. And we all need to check ourselves. We all, no one's above doing the wrong thing. And God holds leadership accountable in so many ways, way more than other people because they're responsible for things. They're going to have to give an account for things. That's why there needs to be transparency. There needs to be uh, humility. There needs to be accountability with all those things. We have no secrets here in our church, no secrets. And, and so it's healthy for that. God uses that. He blesses that and all of that. And I love the fact that they have this great response. We will restore and require nothing from them and we will do as you say when God's word is being taught and we're under the teaching of God's word and the Holy Spirit deals with us on something and confronts us on something we need to submit to that immediately there should be no wrestling the more wrestling we do in general prevents us from having an immediate response in our heart when when he speaks to us we need to just completely surrender in our hearts when he's saying something to us. And he speaks to us so many different ways, and he speaks to us at times we don't expect, and he speaks to us way apart from the verses themselves. I'm amazed how many people say, thank you for saying that, and I'm like, I didn't say it. Inside I'm going, I didn't say that, but I'm glad that you were blessed by that. I'm not saying if it's a good thing. If it's a bad thing, I'll make sure to mention, oh, I didn't say that really. There's not eight to the Trinity, honestly. There's not, there's not eight to the Trinity, but... Um, so it's, it's important that, that um, we hold leaders accountable and leaders lead appropriately. But they had, this, they had this great response. Now, Nehemiah warns them in verse 13. Look with me there. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, may God, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may be, be shaken out and emptied. And, and all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And then the people did according to the promise. So that's true leadership by Nehemiah. The people responded well. They knew that it was of the Lord. He had a biblical basis for what he was saying. 
He didn't have to even quote the verses. That's how well they knew the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Bible. They knew it. They had heard it before. They all said amen. If you're new to the Bible, that means so be it or that's the truth. And, and to whom did they ultimately give credit? Notice we're told that and they praised the Lord. They praised the Lord. Why did they praise the Lord? Because it's evidence what was happening that God's good hand was upon them in giving Nehemiah wisdom on how to deal with this situation and, get, and him, him having the boldness to rebuke the leaders and, and the response by the leaders to do the right thing and, and, and uh, make restitution. They knew that was from the Lord and they recognized that. So when God moves among us, he does something if, if the leaders repent, uh, if, if he supplies in ways that we never thought, all those things, we have professional worshipers being dealt with, and they're having to make promises to do the right thing, and they're, all those things are happening. We need to recognize all of that's from the Holy Spirit. All of that's from the Lord, and we need to worship him and thank him for it. They all praised the Lord. But it didn't end there. The end of the verse says, and they did according to this promise. It's one thing to say amen. It's another thing to say, praise the Lord. This is direction is from the Lord. But then you go off and don't do it. And that's true for all of us at times, right? We hear a teaching. We say amen to it. Amen. We may wave our hand or whatever. Or hankies back in the day. We don't even carry hankies anymore, thankfully. <laughs> you know, I don't want a bunch of hankies around and it's just a whole nother. Th- I'm not a germaphobe, so don't accuse me of being a germaphobe. But that's just another era. That's fine. If you have a hanky, God bless you. Use it all you want. Um, but, you know, we can say amen. We can say praise the Lord, but then not go out and do it. And Jesus says that's the man who is like the man building his house upon the sand. When he hears God speak, he doesn't obey it. We were in James a minute ago. James said, it, you deceive yourselves. If you hear the word only and you don't obey, you're deceiving yourselves. We need to obey God's word. We need to follow through. What are some things that you believe that God has spoken to you about, you said amen to, and you thanked him and you worshiped him for revealing that information, but you haven't done it? You haven't followed through. You need to follow through if that's something that God has told you to do. He just pushes the pause button. Okay, we'll just wait. We're waiting for them to do what I said. And then we go and do it, and the play button's going again. And then, you know, then his plan's unfolding. Maturity is happening the way he wants it to happen. The disciplining stops or is reduced. Maybe going on with other things that he's wanting to do in our lives, but at least related to that, the disciplining goes away. And then we go and we hear something again. We say amen. We say praise the Lord. But then we don't go out and do it. Pause button. We'll pause it. We want, it's just discovering his will and what he has planned for us. All of us fall short in those areas at times, but is there something that he's told you that you need to do? You said amen to it in your heart. You praised him for it, but you haven't followed through. This is telling you you need to follow through with what you said was from him. You need to do it. Verse 14, moreover, from from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. From the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from the bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God." Jesus said, do not lord over the people like the Gentiles love to lord over them. It shall not be so among you. The greatest among you shall be your servant. We don't lord it over people. We don't lord our influence over people. We serve people. We use our influences and our platform to serve people, to make their lives better. And and he sacrificed not having all these provisions and all of that. He did really well, though. You will see in a moment. Um, but he didn't take advantage of all that because it would mean putting more of a burden on the people and they're already suffering. Again, we have to have our eyes on the people's needs and what's best for them, not what's best for us. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus was other-centered. Everything about his life was for others. That's how our lives are supposed to be as his disciples. And it's hard in our culture 
because this culture screams at us and our flesh to put ourselves first, watch out for number one, to, to always you know, prefer ourselves versus others. And God is always trying to get our attention off of ourselves and onto him and to serve others. And as we do that, we become the disciples that he wants us to be. But before we do that, we're just going to continue to be self-centered and, and um, hoard life's resources on ourselves. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time and everything, spiritual gifts, all of that. Get your attention off yourself and onto the kingdom. Put his kingdom first. That's what he said. Put his kingdom first. If things are falling apart in your life, it could be because you stopped putting his kingdom first. Go back, put your, repent, confess your sin, and put his kingdom first again and let him start cleaning up the mess. But he will do it, and he's patient, and he's loving. As it's been said, 10,000 steps away, but one step back in our walks with him. 10,000 steps we could go. But one step back. Verse 16. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall. And we did not buy any land. Which he could because he was wealthy. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers. So in other words, he's supplying for people. He's not taking from people. He's blessing people. Besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily... Well, let me back up again because I didn't see that till just now. Besides those who came to us from the nations around us. That's being salt and light, isn't it? Did you see that? The end of verse 17? You're not tuned out already. Forget about lunch. You don't need it yet. You're getting fed right now. Look at the end of of verse 17. He came to us from the nations around us. I didn't even see that. I've never remember seeing this ever. And I should have seen this this week. Okay, again, no secrets. We have no secrets here. That is beautiful. Not only did he not take advantage of the Jews and put more burdens on them to be able to live according to the delicacies, but he actually supplied and blessed others and had many people there, even people came from the nations around us. He's influencing the world. He's being salt and light. He's recognizing that the Jews were ordained and called to be a light to the Gentiles. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be a blessing to everybody and to preach that gospel. Who in our lives can we bring along and have at our our table? Neighbors. I'm the guiltiest of, and my wife will tell you, I have a hard time getting to know neighbors. It's not purposeful, I guess. Maybe it is. I'm making excuses. But we need to have people over. We need to be salt and light. People are attracted to the Lord Jesus inside of us. They know there's something different. They are attracted to him. We need to take advantage of that in having opportunities to be able to love on people and bring the gospel and have our attention on that. But again, if we're consumed with our own lives, we're consumed with ourselves and all these things, these temporal things that are passing away to the neglect of the eternal things, then we're going to miss out on those opportunities. Nehemiah didn't miss out on those opportunities. Verse 18. Let's hope we can find we won't find any more things I haven't seen yet. <laughs> now that now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. None of you can say, if you love me, feed me sheep. Okay, that's that's the total twisting of what Jesus said. Also, fowl were prepared for me, and once every some of you got that, and once every ten days in abundance of all kinds of wine, yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on his people. We need people that care about God's people being in bondage or, or struggling with sin or whatever it is. We need people that are aware, that care, that are putting them, other people first and setting themselves first. And that's, if we do that, then we're making disciples. Verse 19. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all, all. He wants God to see all that he's done, not some, all that I have done for this people. And God didn't miss any of it. And he doesn't miss any of it in our lives when we do things for his people. God remembered him. And, we, and God did allow us to see this, see this book, learn from it. It's been a blessing to God's people all through the ages So let's treat one another well. Let's not ignore needs in the body of Christ. Let's be proactive in asking people how they're doing, finding out how we can serve. Let's not take advantage of each other, of course. When one suffers, all of of us suffers. 
God is watching. He sees it all. We need to fear God related to our roles and all of that. He doesn't care about, he cares about the means just as much as he does the end. And we have to do all of it in a way that blesses his heart. He will discipline us if we ignore this. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to ignore that. He doesn't want us to ignore that. He doesn't want to discipline us. He wants us to cooperate with what he's doing. And when the body becomes the place that he's called it to be, because it's his church, it's beautiful. We have come so far. We are growing so much. We are very loving, and we are very gracious, and we are very attentive to needs in many ways. But he's calling us to continue to grow in that, and especially as we're going to a whole new neighborhood. We're going to be adopting neighborhoods, literally going door to door and saying, we're adopting you. (laughs) We're here. Like it or not. We're here. We love you. We love your kids. What do you need? How can we pray? You need your lawn mowed? Dave Miller would love to do it. You know, he doesn't need to take a nap on Sunday afternoon. He can mow your lawn. We have a lawnmower right here that he can use, you know? So we're here. We're, we're, we're servants. We're, we, listen, church, we have to be ready for this. This is going to happen. It's going to happen in an amazing way. We need to be ready to be other-centered and giving and sacrificial. So so sad that churches are filled in so many ways, not all, of course, and not all in every church, but with people that are so self-consumed, they're not putting God's kingdom first, and they're missing out on the blessing of being able to be an extension and a vessel in people's lives, extension of God in people's lives. There's nothing like it in this world to have these changed lives that we get to see. Jesus is just waiting for us to take our place where we're supposed to be, on that wall, on Yosemite, 602 East Yosemite, that's our place on the wall. He's going to bring opposition. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be mockery. There's going to be threats. Who knows? I don't know. But God's greater than all of that because his good hand's upon us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for so much in this chapter. Thank you so much that you care for your people and how they suffer. You see every need. You see everything that they go through. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to not be self-consumed with ourselves and our lives and temporal things and investing in all these things that are going to pass away. Help us, Father, to put you first. Help us, Lord, to put your people first, to be aware of what's going on among us, all around us, all the time. Help us to notice the person that's sitting by themselves. Help us to notice the person that is wearing clothes, the same clothes, multiple, multiple weeks in a row. Help us to to, to be aware of people that never have any food to bring to the agape feast. Help us to be aware of people that are crying out to you in silence, Lord. Help us to be aware of those people by your Holy Spirit that we could actively be an extension of you in this world. Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to serve. We recognize we can't be like you unless we're a servant. So help us to be servants, Lord. Help us to consider others better than ourselves. Help us to not compare ourselves among ourselves. And help us to be in complete unity in one purpose, one mind, as your word says. By your Holy Spirit and for your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.